First Samuel chapter 11. Page uh, 233, if you don't have a Bible, I would really encourage you to still read along, not just to listen to me read, but to read as I um, read aloud. That's 1 Samuel chapter 11 today. Uh, The last two chapters introduced Saul to us uh, and uh, the idea of a, a kingdom. At long last, there's a king for Israel to have a kingdom, and... Uh, He was selected in chapter 9, he's anointed in chapter 10, he is officially, we could say, coronated in chapter 11. Uh, We're reading about sort of the more public aspect or or ceremonial aspect of of Saul and his kingship as it is getting underway. 1 Samuel 11, let's give careful attention now to God's word. Then Nahash the Ammonite went up and besieged Jabesh-Gilead, and all the men of Jabesh said to Nahash, Make a treaty with us, and we'll serve you. But Nahash the Ammonite said to them, On this condition I'll make a treaty with you, that I gouge out all your right eyes, and thus bring disgrace on all Israel. The elders of Jabesh said to him, Give us seven days' respite, that we may send messengers through all the territory of Israel. Then, if there is no one to save us, we will give ourselves up to you. When the messengers came to Gibeah of Saul, they reported the matter in the ears of the people, and all the people wept aloud. Now behold, Saul was coming from the field behind the oxen. And Saul said, What's wrong with the people that they're all weeping? So they told him the news of the men of Jabesh. And the Spirit of God rushed upon Saul when he heard these words, and his anger was greatly kindled. He took a yoke of oxen and cut them in pieces and sent them throughout all the territory of Israel by the hand of the messenger, saying, Whoever does not come out after Saul and Samuel, so shall it be done to his oxen. Then the dread of the Lord fell upon the people. And they came out as one man. When he mustered them at Bezek, the people of Israel were 300,000, and the men of Judah, 30,000. And they said to the messengers who had come, Thus shall you say to the men of Jabesh-Gilead, Tomorrow, by the time the sun is hot, you shall have salvation. When the messengers came and told the men of Jabesh, they were glad Therefore, the men of Jabesh said, and this is to Nahash, the Ammonite, the enemies, tomorrow we will give ourselves up to you, and you may do to us whatever seems good to you. And the next day, Saul put the people in three companies, and they came into the midst of the camp in the morning and watch and struck down the Ammonites until the heat of the day. And those who survived were scattered so that no two of them were left together. Then the people said to Samuel, Who is it that said, Shall Saul reign over us? Bring the men that we may put them to death. But Saul said, Not a man shall be put to death this day, for today the Lord has worked salvation in Israel. Then Samuel said to the people, Come, let us go to Gilgal, and there renew the kingdom. So all the people went to Gilgal, and there they made Saul king before the Lord in Gilgal. There they sacrificed peace offerings before the Lord, and there Saul 
and all the men of Israel rejoiced greatly. The grass withers, the flower fades, God's word endures, stands forever. I did check with my wife, and she said it had been long enough since I'd given a Toy Story or a Lion, Lion King uh, illustration. So you're getting uh, the Lion King this morning. Simba finds himself in a difficult situation. He snuck out of the pride, and he's gone to a forbidden land, right? the elephant graveyard. And there, as is to be expected, he encounters those vicious, sinister hyenas uh, who he tries to stand up against. He tries to stand his ground and send them running. He, he gives a roar, and it's more like a, a squeak. And the hyenas don't go running. They just laugh. And now they're, they're encroaching all the more. They're getting closer and closer to having their lunch. And so the young cub, he uh, gathers all the strength and courage he can muster, and he gives it one more try, this time releasing a thunderous, thunderous sound that stuns the hyenas. And they shortly discover it was not Simba, but his father Mufasa, who comes in and destroys, or, or, or <laughs> I heard a roar in here, now I'm, I'm laughing, that was a good, that was a good Mufasa roar. Uh, he comes and he uh, sends the hyenas running. Uh, you and I are more like Simba than Mufasa, let's be honest. We are weak uh, creatures, we are spiritually weak, we're defenseless even when we're left to ourselves. Uh, we could not stand against the enemy even for a second if we were left to ourselves. We could never win any fight. But once we're saved, we are indwelt uh, by uh, or with a, a remarkable power. It's a power from on high. It's a power from our Father. Uh, it's not our strength, but it's our Father's strength through us. And we call that strength the Holy Spirit. And here's some good news for you today. That there is no threat, there is no enemy, there is no obstacle that the Spirit of God cannot overcome, and indeed will not overcome, in, through, and for God's people. No threat, no obstacle, no enemy that the Spirit of God cannot overcome. And such victory demands a response from us. Because God does that work in and through us, it demands a response from us. A response of trust and love and, and obedience. Or we could put it this way. Uh, the, 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 the pride of this world, the arrogance of this world, the, the evil of this world, this worldly pride that tries to conquer God's people is overcome by a spiritual power. And that spiritual power then demands a response of believing obedience, uh, a believing pledge of loyalty and love. And that's the lesson I want us to learn from today's passage. Let's turn to verse 1. We open on Jabesh Gilead, that's a, a, a region within Gilead, which is a land east of the Jordan River. In Numbers 23, uh, you don't need to turn there, but there's a story that we find where as they're working their way towards the promised land, two tribes um, of uh, Reuben and Gad fall in love with the land of Gilead. Uh, it's got great pastures, and they have a lot of sheep, and they, they ask Moses, can we stay here? The rest of you cross the Jordan and enter into the promised land, but is it okay with you if we set up our home here? And Moses says, as long as you come over with us and fight with us 
and do the work of the conquest with us, then yes, you can return to Gilead. Well, it's these Israelites that remain in Gilead that we're reading of now. They're the ones being harassed by Nahash the Ammonite. They're the ones who have been besieged by him. Uh, Nahash is the king of Ammon. The Ammonites are distant cousins of the Israelites. They're descendants of Lot's incestuous relationship with his daughter. And Nahash, their king, seems to have inherited the evil that birthed his nation. And in Nahash, we have represented worldly pride. That's the first thing, worldly pride. We see the evil of arrogance. We have here a, a tale that is literally as old as time, right? Not, not a beast falling in love with a beauty, not that tale, but the tale of a serpent set against a god, a serpent at enmity towards the creator. Nahash, his name actually means snake. So you can understand maybe some of the biblical theology that's trying to be communicated in this story. Nahash plays the part well, continuing on the legacy of his ancestor from the garden. Just as the devil tried to woo Eve away from her relationship, her covenantal relationship with God, that's what Nahash is trying to do with the Israelites. Um, They say they've been so besieged by him, he forces them to their knees that they have to say this in verse 1, make a treaty with us and we will serve you. The word for treaty is actually the same word for covenant. Let's, let's enter into a covenantal relationship with one another. They are asking Nahash to be their Lord, and they will be his faithful servants. Uh, if he, if he uh, fights for them, they'll work for him. They'll pay him taxes as long as he promises to protect them. They'll become his people. And so just as the serpent attempted to thwart the relationship between um, Adam and Eve and their God, here we have Nahash trying to get Israel to enter into a counter-covenant with him that would, in effect, be against their God. And it's at this point Nahash shows himself to be truly reprehensible. The people are begging. They say, we'll be your slaves. And he says, no, that's not good enough. The only way I'll agree to your terms and not just annihilate you, not just wipe you out, is if first I can gouge out the right eye of all the men in the nation. He wants to make them a nation of invalids. He wants to make it so that none of them can serve in war anymore, can fight against him. He wants to make it so that maybe more than just not fighting, they can't even really walk around or get around society without help. Nahash doesn't hide his intentions. What does he say in verse 2? He wants to gouge out their right eyes and thus bring disgrace on Israel. So taking these tribes, these helpless tribes as his servants, isn't enough? Getting more money? Uh, coming into the kingdom isn't enough. Uh, you know, strengthening his military forces, that's not enough. It's about shame and subjugation. He wants to humiliate them, and he wants to show the world that they are nothing and he is everything. Uh, here's what commentator Dale Ralph Davis perceptively writes. He says, Nahash may become historical furniture, but the Ammonite mind which is to maim, destroy, and strangle God's people, is always with us. The Ammonite Ammonite mind, what we see in in Nahash, a desire to maim and to destroy and strangle God's people, is always with us. Uh, The the world doesn't want to be your friend, uh, not while you are friends with God. James 4, don't, don't you know 
right? That friendship with the world is enmity with God. Therefore, anyone who makes themselves a friend of the world makes themselves an enemy of God. You can't have it both ways. And churches that try to have it both ways, that try to both be on good terms with God and the world, will inevitably, inevitably abandon God for the sake of the world. In other words, the moment we compromise even a little, we've actually capitulated entirely. And that's exactly what the world wants from us. They want us to capitulate. Uh, we have experienced that the, the culture is not stopping until we do just that. We've experienced the less than subtle shift in the messaging of, just as one example, things like the um, LGBTQ movement where it began um, with this, this idea of acceptance. We want to be part of society. Just accept us and, and, and let us be who we want to be. And now we've moved from acceptance to affirmation. You need to agree with what, what we want to be. And if you don't, then, then there's all sorts of, of consequences. Houston was in the headlines back in 2014 when the mayor of Houston issued subpoenas against five uh, pastors in the city uh, wanting to read um, the sermons uh, of, from those pastors uh, for rhetoric that did not toe the party line, in this case, preaching against um, sexual sin. So there's there's a war on, don't make any mistake about it, this is uh, the seed of the serpent laying siege against the seed of the woman. That's Genesis 3 language, right? When the serpent comes in, God promises there's going to be this, this um, conflict that reaches until the consummation between those who follow after the devil and those who follow after God. Now, to be clear, this does not mean that every unbeliever is actively seeking to destroy the church. I think that's important to acknowledge. You likely know many unbelievers who are kind and gracious, um, and kind and gracious in terms of your views, even supportive of the work of the church, appreciative of the work of the church. They just don't uh, believe in it. Um, what we have to recognize, though, is that there is something sinister at work in the world. The devil's called the prince of the power of the air. There's a force about that is moving um, things, to, uh, things that um, in, in the world, especially larger institutions, things like universities and political powers and, and governments, uh, things like that against the church. The greater the power, the greater um, or, or the more evident is the corruption. But there's no neutral. That's the point. There's no neutral. You either are for, for God or you are against him. And therefore, if you are for God, you will expect the world to be opposed to you. Jesus said to, to expect that kind of opposition. It's part of our being united to Christ, right? We share not just in his victory, we share in his sufferings too. And so since the world hated him, the world will also hate us. That's what Jesus says in his final moments with the disciples. And John brings that up in 1 John chapter 3, verse 13. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. This is what it's going to be like. The world not only hates us, the world is, is set on defeating us, wants to conquer the church, and the world actually thinks it will win. Here's the pride of Nahash. I wonder if you noticed the arrogance in that he allows the people that he has subjugated the chance to go get help. He gives them a whole week. Uh, that makes no sense just from a military perspective, right? Uh, a greater power comes in, they have a decisive victory, they besiege the town, and then say, says, 
you know what, actually, we're going to pull back our forces and give you seven days. Why don't you go see if you can get some reinforcements to come in and kill us? Go, go for it. I mean, it just doesn't happen. This is his arrogance, though. He's convinced that there's nobody, there's nothing out there that can beat him. This is uh, Psalm 2, right? Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain, right? In vain. They think through coalitions and strategies that God's sovereign rule over all things can be overturned. Uh, That can never happen. God will always rule and reign, and he always does so for the sake of his people. And we see that in this story. We see that worldly pride is met, it's matched, and it is overcome by spiritual power. That's the second thing we want to see today, spiritual power. This scene of Saul coming in mighty salvation for Israel is indicative of how God works in and through his people. So notice what happens, beginning in verse um, 4, the messengers uh, from uh, Jabesh, uh, Gilead come to Gibeah where Saul lives and they're reporting the matter and you can imagine they've probably gone to many places and letting them know what's going on and uh, Saul is working out in the fields verse 5 he's coming from the field behind the oxen they didn't have you know a Buckingham Palace equivalent yet becoming king probably didn't look all that glamorous just yet he, you know he's just doing his normal work he doesn't seem any more uh, special than anybody else Uh, But he hears what's happened. Why is everybody crying? What's going on? They explain what's going on about Nahash the Ammonite wanting to gouge out the right eyes of of all their cousins living in Gilead and then subjecting them, bringing them into part of his kingdom. And here's where we see that Saul really is king. He might just be in the field with the oxen. He doesn't have a palace, but he's king for this reason, that he is inspired, literally, filled by the Holy Spirit, to actually do something about this situation for the sake of his people. He actually wants to do something. Uh, so notice three things. First, in verse 6, he's angry. Second, in verse 7, he acts through this gruesome tactic. He, he sort of coerces the rest of Israel, who are not as, as um, enraged as he is because they haven't been filled by that same spirit in that same way uh, they, they don't think this is as big of a deal. They're not willing to do something about it. He courses them and gets them to come out as one man. He inspires them like a good leader should. Uh, first, he's angry. Second, he acts. Third, he wins. Verses 8 through 11. We're given the description of Saul's victory. Tactical brilliance. He and his men soundly defeat the enemy. They kill many, and those who are left are scattered so that it says... Um, in verse 11, no two of them are left together. Well, what are we learning here? This is a lesson, and an important lesson, of the necessity of the Spirit of God to take on the forces of evil. Our great enemies, the world, the flesh, and the devil, can only be overcome through the power of God's Spirit. They can only be overcome by the power of God's Spirit. In other words, to put this in a personal way, until you are converted... Until you are born again, until you are regenerated by the breath of God filling your heart and your soul, you don't stand a chance. You don't stand a chance against your anger or your selfishness or your pride or those lusts that you hide from others. 
You don't stand a chance against them and against the penalty that you owe because of those sins, which is eternal damnation. It is the Spirit of God that enables believers, though, in three key ways uh, to combat these sins. And there are three ways that mirror what we see with Saul. So first, you need the Spirit in order to hate sin. That's the first thing. This is how the Spirit of God works in Christians. You need the Spirit of God in order to hate sin. What do we read in verse 6 about Saul? His anger was greatly kindled. This is a superhuman anger. This is not the anger that you feel when your car doesn't start in the morning. This is not the anger that you feel when your toilet starts leaking Saturday night and you have a sermon to preach the next morning and it takes six hours and multiple trips to Lowe's to get it fixed. That just, off the top of my head, I don't know where that came from. That's, it's not that anger. It's not the anger that you feel when your kids talk back to you. It's not necessarily even the anger that you feel when people mistreat you. Not necessarily. This is holy anger. This is righteous anger. This is anger that arises when God is offended. When God's word is mistreated. That's the anger that Saul feels. And we'll never have that kind of anger unless we have the spirit of God. Anger is, is not sinful. We need to remember that. We are commanded, actually, in the Bible to, to be angry. Paul writes in Ephesians, be angry and do not sin. He doesn't say, if you ever happen to get angry, make sure you don't do something sinful as a result. He actually commands us, be angry. There are times where we must be angry. Angry, this is the proper response to sin in the world, to when God is, is blasphemed in the world. It would be wrong not to be angry. That's how we should feel about sin in the world, sin in our own hearts, but without the Spirit of God, we'll never hate our sin. We'll love it. We'll cherish it. We'll, we'll, we'll protect it. We'll promote it. But when you have the Spirit of God, you are enabled to actually hate your sin, to be angry about it. But second, you need the Spirit of God not just to hate sin, but to fight sin. Right? Saul doesn't stop at being angry at Nahash. He doesn't receive this news and say, that just really riles me up. Oh, well. No, he takes the fight to Nahash. You need the Spirit of God in order to fight sin. Unless we have the Spirit of God, we won't engage in that work because it's hard and we won't want to. We'll say, well, that's too bad, but, but what can one do? Well, third and most importantly, you need the Spirit of God, not just to hate sin, not just to fight sin, but actually to kill sin. You need the Spirit of God to beat it. To, it's, it's, it's not us, of course, it's Christ. In us, it's not Simba's roar, it's Mufasa, it's his father's roar through him that sends the enemies running. It's the Lord at work in you. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And so it's the Holy Spirit, this is what Paul writes in Titus 2, the Holy Spirit that trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, teaching us to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives. If you don't have the Spirit of God, you can't do that. And so if you are sick and tired of the sin that keeps dragging you down, if you're longing for the change that you can't seem to affect in your own life, then there is hope and there is help, but it's not in you, in yourself. It is not you. It's not the books you read. It's not the, the blogs that you read. It's not the diets that you try. It's not the friends you follow. John Owen once wrote that there is no way of deliverance from the state and condition of being in the flesh except by the Spirit of Christ. There is no way 
except by the Spirit of Christ. When you have the Spirit, friends, this is exciting. When you have the Spirit, you can actually do what Christ has done, right? It's his Spirit. When he gives you his Spirit, you can do what he's done. And what did he do? He defeated sin. You can actually conquer sin in your life. You can. You can actually die to sin and live to righteousness. And this is a theme, isn't it, that Paul brings up uh, again and again, in, in particular in the book of Romans. And I want to trace out some of those with you. So turn with me to Romans, and we're looking at Romans chapter 6 first. But here we're looking at this theme that when you're united to the Son of God, and when you have the Spirit of God, it means that you have an entirely different relationship to sin than the one we're used to, than the one that's natural to us. We have a supernatural, superhuman relationship to sin. Look at Romans 6, 4 through 7. And I think we all need reminded of verses like these again and again, especially as we fight sin and then we we fail. We think, oh, I guess I can't do it. No, you can. You can be angry with sin. You can fight sin and you can beat sin in your life. Look what we're told. Romans 6, verse 4 through 7. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we've been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, that it wouldn't win, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin, For one who has died has been set free from sin. If you've died in Christ, with Christ, his death counts as yours, his death to sin on the cross, you've been set free from sin. Uh, Flip the page, Romans 7, 5 and 6. For while we were living in the flesh, that is before we're born again, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members, our body, to bear fruit for death. We're just doing things that lead to death. But now... We are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit, and not in the old way of the written code. Uh, One more passage, chapter 8, verse 5 and following. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that's set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. It doesn't, it doesn't die to sin. It doesn't do what God says. Indeed, it can't do this, Paul's writing. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, dear Christian, are not in the flesh, but you're in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of God does not belong, the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Christ, but if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. Friends, the Spirit is life-giving. And the Jabesh Gileadites understood that, right? Because the Spirit rushes upon Saul, they are saved. They don't die. They live. It was by the Spirit-empowered Saul that salvation came to them. Without the Spirit, though, we have no chance against the death and darkness that is in us. If I can quote John Owen one more time, he says this, This is the work of the Spirit that is dying to sin. By him alone is it wrought, and by no other power is it to be brought about. If we try to kill sin from a self-strength, 
carried on by ways of self-invention unto the end of a self-righteousness, that is the soul and substance of all false religion in the world. Let me put it more plainly. If you try to be good by yourself, you won't be good at all. And in fact, that you can't even call yourself a Christian. That's what he's saying. It's false religion. If that's how you live, if that's what you're basing your hope on, what I can do. No, no, no. True, true religion, true spirituality, true Christianity says, I need the Spirit of God. And when you have the Spirit of God, you can say no to sin. Now, I need to have a word now to you who may be getting discouraged at this point because of indwelling sin. Because you thought you had the Spirit of God, and then Pastor Cruz came up here and said all these things that should be true of you because you have the Spirit of God, and now you're starting to wonder, maybe I'm not a Christian. So I want to say a word to you if that, that's you today and you're feeling discouraged. First, I want to say you do have the ability, you do, to say no to sin. Uh, I want you to hear that, and I actually want, to hear your, I want you to hear yourself say that, maybe even this afternoon. I'm not kidding. You might be home alone. Say it out loud. Whenever you're thinking again about that, that lust that keeps coming back up or a wicked habit or a bad behavior, let yourself say no. You can do it. Just say it. Allow yourself to do that. If you're a Christian, you are not just forgiven. You are set free. And I want you to enjoy that. I want you to enjoy it. But I do not want you to place your hope of heaven on your ability to fight sin. Let me say that again. Do not place your hope of heaven on your ability to fight sin. That would be the wrong lesson to learn here. Because more than giving us a picture of what the spirit-empowered Christian can do, Saul is giving us a picture of what the spirit-empowered Christ did do for us. Christ is the one who perfectly hates sin all the time. The one who never excuses sin. Uh, never winks at sin, uh, never entertains it, but the one who hates it and has fought it and has fought it to the death, dying himself, but rising again, and he has done it for you. Look at, if you're back in 1 Samuel, look at verse 3, because I think this is our problem. It's exactly what the Jabesh Gileadites said. This is why we give in to sin. It's because we take the attitude of the Jabesh Gileadites. Here they have an enemy a, a wicked force against them, and their, their line is this. Give us some time, verse 3, that we may send messengers through all the territory of Israel. Here it is. Then, if there is no one to save us, we will give ourselves to you. Isn't that maybe sometimes our attitude against sin? We, we, we think, we sort, of, we sort of act like there is no one to save us, so I might as well give in. I've tried so much, and I guess there's nothing to do but now to serve this sin in my life. You need to remember, there is one who says to you, like Saul says to the Gileadites, you shall have salvation. There is one who saves you. You do not need to serve sin. Remember the one who says, you shall have salvation, and put your hope in him. He is your hope. He is your help. He is your heaven. And what's your response to that? What's your response to that gospel truth? That, that Christ has once for all defeated sin and its condemning power, and, and even more than that, gives you his Holy Spirit so that you can experience the defeat of sin in your own life. 
Well, it should be something of the response of Israel to the salvation that Saul secures for them. They renew their commitment to the Lord. And so we see finally that worldly pride is met by spiritual power. And that calls for a believing pledge, a believing commitment to the Lord. A a, a renewed covenant to be be his. Uh, Look what happens in verse 12 and 15 as we close here. After Saul's astounding victory, the people who had supported him... Back at the end of chapter 10, uh, want to find those worthless men who refused to serve Saul. That was how the, the chapter ended in chapter 10. Some worthless fellow said, how can this man save us? And so there are people who are you know, indignant about this. Where are those guys? We want to kill them. And uh, interestingly, Saul recognizes that this is not a time for vengeance, but for victory. Let's celebrate what the Lord has done. He's, it's, a, it's an act of mercy on his part. He's allowing those who once rejected God's anointed uh, to now come along with everyone else and give themselves in worship and devotion to the Lord. And so we see Samuel, Samuel who is you know, the prophet of God, steps back in to lead the people in this worship service where the covenant is renewed, the kingdom is renewed, not the kingdom of Saul, but the kingdom of God. Yes, Saul is officially coronated at this moment, but the fact that the faithful prophet Samuel is leading the charge and that the event ends with, what do we see? Sacrifice. It all points to the fact that this is about God. It's not about one man. This is about God. This is a religious moment. They are recommitting themselves as individuals as well as a nation to the God that they had previously spurned and rejected, and they are acknowledging that his rule and his way is best. After such a complete salvation, how could they do anything else? How could they do anything less? And how could we do anything less now that Christ has come, has said to us, you shall have salvation, and has, has accomplished that salvation for us? So what's the response? What's the only proper response to a God who sends the Messiah to defeat your enemies and then empowers you by his Holy Spirit until he brings you home to himself? The only proper response is to give yourself to him. Here, Lord, I give myself away. It's all that I can do. Charles Wesley once wrote, it's all that I can do. There's a transformation in this passage, isn't there? How did this story begin? It began with the Israelites seeking to enter into a covenant with their enemies. It begins with the Israelites thinking that the only recourse to save their skin is to make a covenant with their enemies. But here's the transformation. It ends with them realizing that they are saved by the God who already made a covenant with them. And so they return to him. They renew that covenant. They renew their faith and trust in the God who alone can declare without any equivocation, you shall have salvation. And we ought to do the same. Let's pray. Father, truly there is no proper response but to give you ourselves. You have given us yourself in the gospel. You've sent to us Jesus Christ to to be our sympathizing Savior, to be united with us in, in our infirmities, but then to do what we could never do, to defeat sin, to defeat our enemies, to die for us and to rise again. And he's given us his own spirit, the spirit that that. He was anointed with the spirit that was with him in every moment of his earthly ministry. That same spirit is now in us. What, what do we have to fear? What, what, 
What do we have to be worried about? Since the same spirit that raised Christ from the dead dwells in us, we know we'll also have life and resurrection. We know that we'll have this newness. We will not succumb to sin. Since you have done these things for us, Lord, we want to give ourselves totally over to you. We ask that you would cause us to do that and not to wait even a moment, but to come to you promptly and sincerely. In Jesus' name, amen.